Dr. Balper, the team of the brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors this week to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, the results of our free agent crowdsourcing project help us to understand uh, the general landscape of the free agent market, if not the precise terms, as Dave Cameron notes in his previous uh, editions of the free agent crowdsourcing project have revealed the crowd typically underestimates the top free agents by quite a margin. Why is that? Why is that? We discuss specifically the case of Ben Zobrist, an older free agent who likely make more than the crowd estimated, and Jason Hayward, a considerably younger one whose free agent case poses some uh, interesting questions. In this edition, uh, we also learn about BAM Tech, which is another uh, vehicle by which the Major League Baseball there is turning billions into more billions. I compel Dave Cameron to speculate wildly on how many hours Scott Boris, that is super agent Scott Boris, works in a given week. And we end our, our conversation. I asked Dave Cameron how he feels about this particular edition of the show uh, as compared to usual. I think like I would revise my own expectations up at this point. Before uh, moving on, of course, I am obligated to mention the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft and the Draft app. Are you familiar with uh, daily fantasy sports games such as FanDuel or DraftKings? Draft is not unlike uh, either of those except for the fact that it is the first uh, such game designed uh, with mobile devices in mind specifically. Here's how you play. You pick as an opponent, either a friend or internet stranger, part of the draft universe. You each select five players by means of a snake draft. Those players accrue fantasy points on any given night in whichever uh, between you and your opponent has acquired the most fantasy points. This is the winner. Are you very confident in your abilities, this sort of endeavor? Uh, what you can do, what you can do is you can wager American currency without any legal recourse, I'm led to believe. Very exciting. Of what you might be saying now is, Carson, that is exciting. How do I get involved? Well, it's uh, rather simple. What you do is if you have a device with the iOS operating system, direct your attention to the App Store. Contrary-wise, if you have an Android mobile device, uh, consider going to Google Play or something like Google Play. There you can find the Draft app. Download it and begin playing immediately for free or, as I've said, for American currency. This has been a message regarding the sponsor draft. I've already told you about the guest, Dave Cameron. So uh, where are we? What are we doing? It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I have been told that I sound like uh, uh, Donald Duck with laryngitis. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. Who said that? Uh, someone a long time ago. Mm. Stuck with you, though, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of line that you don't forget. Hurts. Uh, oh, I thought it was pretty funny, actually. Okay. All right. Um, uh, let's see. What are we talking about? Hey, we're going to the winter meeting soon. We are. Um, but before that, I guess what uh, are the GM meetings happen right now? Do they just happen? They're starting today. Well, well I, probably by the time you post this, they'll have just ended. Yeah. <laughs> Can you a uh, brief reminder about what GM what GM meetings are and what's accomplished there and what is not accomplished there? There. So the GM meetings are a much smaller scale version of the winter meetings, and that uh, you know the, or, the entire organization doesn't go. Uh, not you know like. 
at the winter meetings, like basically the whole front office or most of the decision makers uh, descend, and um, there's a lot of uh, kind of extraneous. You know, there's a job fair. There's a, a whole bunch of stuff that kind of goes around it. Um, the GM meetings are basically uh, uh, a smaller affair where just kind of the higher level, uh, you know, they, they, the GMs used to be the guys in charge. They're not anymore. But now uh, presidents of baseball operations uh, might attend or they might just send their GM. Um, but it's more meeting with agents, uh, laying groundwork, kind of getting a feel for the market. Um, so they get together. There's some rules type things. Uh, there are some actual meetings that take place. Um, but for the most part, uh, it's a lot of meetings with agents. And, you know, since free agency just started, this is where those crazy packets of information are going to be handed out. So you're going to see like 250-page binders comparing uh, David Price to Sandy Koufax. And, you know, like uh, all of that will get distributed this week. Oh, okay, right. And in, in the... I guess it's interesting, right? Because you you mentioned that the that agents essentially have uh, pretty elaborate pitches, right? Some of them, yeah. Okay, some of them. Scott Boris, most notably. Right, but I assume that clubs, I mean, every club has has uh, some means to uh, collecting information about a player, and and some of them are maybe more analytically driven or more scouting driven, but they, they all have reads on players, to what, to what degree do you think that those packets of information actually influence the decision-making of front offices? Uh, the actual front office members, probably not a lot. Owners, maybe a lot. I think uh, one of the trends in baseball lately, or over the last few years, has been that these really large contracts are made above the head of the baseball operations department. Like uh, the Max Scherzer contract is basically um, widely understood to have been a decision uh, made by the learners and not the, the Washington Nationals baseball operations staff. Um, the learners essentially decided, you know, Scott Boris convinced them to sign Max Scherzer, uh, and, and they did so, and then they told their baseball operations staff about it. Uh, so I think that when you're putting together one of these kind of uh, propaganda packets, you're almost uh, – uh, trying to reach the ownership level more than you are, you know, the GM or, you know, the assistant GM or the director of baseball operations. Like those guys are probably pretty comfortable with their evaluation of the player and kind of, you know, they're hired for their baseball expertise. Owners, you know, they might not know who these guys are, like, or, you know, at least they're maybe aware of the name, but can be persuaded more easily on their, and their value. And you might be able to put together a compelling argument based on, not just the player skills, but maybe even a revenue argument where if you go to, you know, a team in a specific spot and you can kind of show an owner, hey, look, your television contract's coming up for renewal. Um, you know, in a couple of years, you're going to be, you know, facing a 50, 100 million dollar potential bump in revenues per year. Uh, if you win, you know, over the next couple of years, maybe you can bump that up to 125 million. And so then this, this player who can help you win can maybe pay for himself and, and you can kind of make an argument based around potential revenue gains that, you know, an owner might be more receptive to than than lower-level staffers. It's a very specific sort of advertising, isn't it, in marketing? When you are when you have an audience of, you know, 30 or fewer billionaires. Yeah. That's a, that's a unique – there's not an undergraduate class for that, really. No, I mean, I think this, this is one of the things that, you know um, – Probably the best agents have figured out how to do this, and this is probably one of the reasons Scott Boris has been able to get more money for his clients than a lot of other agents, is he has figured out how to communicate above the baseball operations staff in an effective way. And, you know, like, you know, Prince Fielder, 
blows out, or, uh, uh, Victor Martinez blows out his knee, and, uh, Scott Boris is waiting and calls Mike Illich and is like, boy, do I have a Prince Fielder for you, and a guy who looked like he had basically gotten shut out by all the baseball operations executives who weren't interested in giving him a $200 million contract. Uh, you know, all of a sudden the Tigers say, well, we have a need, we're gonna win, we're gonna sign this guy, and, uh, Prince Fielder gets paid really well and gets a, a really nice contract. Um, that's something that I think has separated uh, Boris maybe from some of the from some of the other agents and and I would imagine at this point they're likely trying to follow his lead and and getting as high up the food chain as they can in order to get uh, as much money for their players as possible. How many hours do you think Scott Boris works a week? That's a good question. I mean, he's got a huge staff that's doing obviously all the grunt work for him. Like you know, he's not putting together the presentation himself. Uh, you know, uh, that's a good question. I would imagine. Given his list of clients and how many they have, probably most of his work at this point is probably a combination of PR and just taking care of his players and communicating directly with them. Um, my guess would be he's kind of like the president of baseball operations of his own agency and that, you know, he has people under him who are doing the day-to-day work. Uh, but I would imagine that, you know, for especially his higher profile clients, they probably want to hear from him directly and he probably has to do a decent amount of uh, glad handing in order to keep them happy. Mm-hmm. And he's probably the one who meets with the owner, right? Uh, maybe. I mean, I would imagine like a lot of this is done via, you know, email and, and yeah. maybe even texting now. Um, you know, there might be some uh, instances where, uh, Boris just like, you know, walks up to the owner and says, let's go have dinner. And that, that probably happens, especially down the line in negotiations. But my guess is, um, you know, he's probably opened up some lines of communication with some of these guys that he's had relationships with, so where he can, you know, maybe just mail them things, or, you know, there's, it's probably not all in person, would be okay. my guess. Yeah. But this is like wild speculation. I've, I've never, has, I've never uh, followed Scott Boris around on a daily basis. He probably, do you think he ever has working dinners? Oh yeah, certainly. Those, that has, that's a good, that's a good place to be, isn't it? Where, where part of your job is to, is to discuss business over dinner. Yeah, I think at that point you're in the one percent. If yeah. you've ever had a working dinner, you're rich. I want to go there. I want yeah. to go to there. Uh, right. We're going to be when we go to the maybe we can uh, convince Appleman to take us out. And Those are business. not working dinners. Those are just dinners. Mm. Like there's no like I mean there's no actual. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that because I think uh, <laughs> they get charged to the, the company credit card. There, there are working dinners. They are working dinners. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I should probably stop talking now before I get fired. Yeah, that's right. The crowdsourcing uh, results were released. Um, they were this past week. Now, before we get into uh, to some of those specific numbers, if we do that at all, it is a fact um, that the numbers typically, um, the numbers that you find in uh, in the crowdsourcing, they tend to be lower than 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 the figures that are actually given to players. At the high end, yeah. At the, the high end, right? The crowd and, is too high on low players and too low on high players. And well, here's a question: is especially at the high, especially at the high end, and of course this dovetails what we we're just discussing with you know um, owners meeting with Scott Boris, et cetera, or having business dinners with Scott Boris, or receiving emails from Scott Boris. Um, is this the difference between finding the median result and this what might be like the 90th percentile possibility for for a player's future income? 
Yeah, that's the main part of it. I mean, you're basically reporting the aggregate of the uh, wide variety of opinions uh, of people who fill out the crowdsourcing where, uh, you know, that's not what gets reported when a player signs. We don't get the aggregate of the top 20 bids or top 30 bids or whatever. It's not like uh, someone saying, okay, Tampa Bay Rays, what would you pay David Price? And they, like, weigh in at, like, $75 <laughs> million or something, and that gets counted into the total. Like, all we ever hear is the top the top bid, or, you know, in some cases, the number two bid if a player takes a little less money that will play for a winner or something. Um, so the fact that we're reporting the median and the average does mean that uh, we're just going to be reporting figures that are lower than, you know, the the top bid by a, a free agent, uh, by a major league team. But I think uh, some of that is also, you know, uh, the crowd is anticipating that maybe, and so I would guess, like, everyone's trying to guess what the player is going to get. Um, so I wouldn't think that that's going to drive all of the gap, uh, it's certainly gonna drive, uh, a good part of it, and I think, you know, historically, um, we've seen that the numbers at the high end are just a little low from the crowd's perspective, or a lot low in some cases. Um, but I also think, like, there's something to be said for the fact that, like, these mega contracts are negotiated by people who, um, you know, aren't baseball experts to be, to be fair. Like, you know, when you're de- dealing with ownership and you're dealing with a $200 million contract, there's maybe a, a lack of rationality uh, in terms of um, making that decision when, you know, maybe from the, the crowdsourcing perspective, uh, it's more based on like a baseball operations general manager perspective where they might say, you know what, we could go buy two or three players and we would rather spread out the risk where uh, perhaps the owner says, you know what, there's value to me in marketing and having a star player and I just like this guy and I want to win before I die. Uh, that that gets priced in at these highest levels of free agent contracts uh, where no one in the crowdsourcing is saying, you know what, I might die <laughs> before the, this player's uh, contract expires, so I'm just going to go too high on on the deal, even though I don't think he's worth it. Right. So do you, uh, with regard to what you saw uh, in the, the crowdsource figures, I suppose, um, ignoring the precise numbers for a moment, did you feel as though the order of the, of the numbers made sense, the order of the players? Yeah, I think in general the crowd mostly got it right. I think the Ben Zobrist one is the notable exception where I think the crowd just whiffed on Ben Zobrist, and I think he's going to get, you know, almost uh, 75 to 100% more than they expected. Um so I think he would he would be a lot higher on my personal list and was a lot higher on my personal list. Uh, but I think for the most part, right, the crowd correctly identified the general order of how guys are going to get paid. I think you can make an argument that like maybe Chris Davis uh, is another guy who's you know under undervalued by the the crowd and he's going to be higher up the actual list at the end uh, by total dollars. But for the most part, I think the crowd did a good job uh, once you adjust for the fact that the, the numbers are always just a little bit low. So. Uh, the crowd gave Ben Zobrist 342, I believe. Yeah, you know how many teams would sign Ben Zobrist for 342? All of them. All 30 of them. of them. Every team in baseball would <laughs> sign Ben Zobrist for 342. Okay. <clears throat> and then you put, uh, and then you had him at uh, 476. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, the, part of this, it can't be ignored, right? That Ben Zobrist is, is he entering his age 35 season? Does that sound right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Maybe so, 34. But it's either 34 or 35. And he's also a player who really has never been paid what he's worth throughout the course okay. of his entire career. Correct. He's been dramatically underpaid, in part because he developed really late. And so, you know, by the time he got really good, he was already, you know, 30 years old. And, you know, you're not going to necessarily sign a really long-term big money deal to a guy who, uh, you know, is theoretically declining. Right. And, he, I mean, he's 
probably theoretically declining now or yeah. actually declining. But his peak, of course, his peak was quite high. Yeah. Um, even if it, even if it was, um, even if that peak was informed by skills that tend not to get players lots of money. Um, what, what is the, what do you think is the rationale behind a team paying him what, what approximately, what do you have, 20 million, 20 million, almost 20 yeah, million? 19 million a year. 19 million a year, yeah. I mean, so I think there's a couple of factors here. It's like one, I think Ben Zobris is really good, right? <laughs> so that's like the primary motivator. If you look at this market and you say like, uh, you know, I could buy a, you know, probably a league average player for, uh, somewhere around 15 million a year. I mean, if you look at the kind of the qualifying offers and the player, the type of players that were extended qualifying offers, it seems pretty clear that major league teams are comfortable at this point paying major league average players about 15 million dollars per year on a one year deal. They'll pay less than that on a long term deal because they're expected to decline. But, um, you know, it's, I think, fair to say that an average player nowadays is worth about 15 million dollars. Ben Zobrist is an above average player, right? And maybe a well above average player. If you believe the projections, I think they still have him close to four wins for next year, which is, you know, as valuable as two average players. So you'd put that at almost 30 million a year. Uh, clearly you're not going to pay Ben Zobrist 30 million dollars a year. Uh, I don't think anyone uh, it, 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 maybe someone would do that on a one-year deal if you're like the Red Sox or Yankees or Dodgers or something. But you know, considering he's going to want multiple years, he's going to have to take a discount just like everyone else does. So the question is, how how close to the average uh, does he get? And like, would you rather just pay an average player uh, 15 million on on a one-year deal, you know, every year and just keep signing these low-risk one-year deals, or would you rather say, you know what, I, I'm going to bet that Zobrist is going to stay healthy and play well, and uh, you know, maybe the end of the deal won't be so great, but I'm going to get a ton of value up front. And I think if we look at Ben Zobrist and say, like, maybe you expect him to be a three-win player, uh, realistically, that's probably worth 25 million dollars or something like that. So he gets a, a little less than that in his first first year, and then it's probably about right in his second year, and then he's a little overpaid in his third year. Uh, you know, and if you get in four years, maybe it won't be a great deal for the team, but uh, I think that's kind of how teams are going to look at it and say, look, this is a $25 million per year player next year. Uh, if we can get him, you know, for 17, 18, 19 million, we're getting a value up front and we'll just pay for it in a few years. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, in some ways, like, not necessarily in terms of quality, but in terms of age, uh, we have Jason Hayward, yeah. who uh, both you and the crowd have projected as receiving the second largest contract. Um, you went, uh, I think you, you actually have predicted roughly the same average annual value, but just another year. Yeah. Hayward's an interesting case, right? And uh, I should say at the end of last week, uh, Craig Edwards explored this in some depth, uh, looking at some comparables for Hayward. And it's hard, uh, it's a bit hard to find comparables for Hayward because he's reaching free agency at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the trickiest part of determining Hayward's value is how much weight you put on uh, expected future improvement. Because I think if you talk to scouts and you talk to people who, um, you know, maybe view Hayward as not a star, uh, a lot of it is based around the fact that, like, no one likes his swing. His swing is kind of universally hated <laughs> within within the game, and, and no one thinks he's going to be able to turn that swing into a uh, a power production. Um, and so everyone kind of sees him as, like, a, a guy who draws walks, except he didn't draw a lot of walks this year, but has previously drawn a lot of walks and tries to get a bunch of singles and doubles, and then, you know, will hit 10 or 15 home runs. And as a corner outfielder, that's not necessarily seen as an impact offensive player, and no one really looks at that swing and says, well, yeah, he's only 25, give him a couple of years, if he gets, adds some weight, 
uh, and gets into his prime seasons, then that's going to turn into 30 home runs. Like, no one really buys that. So um, if you look at it from a strict kind of aging curve perspective where you're like, oh, man, there's maybe some offensive upside left and maybe Hayward, you know, the 120 WRC plus guy, you know, at 23, 24, 25, maybe he could be a 130, 140 guy in a couple of years. At that point, he's, you know, in the conversation for one of the best players in baseball, um, you know, or, you know, top five at least. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of skepticism of whether he can become that. And, you know, so then if you're looking at him and saying, this is, this is a guy who is what he is, then the question is how fast do you think the defense and base running are going to decay and how much are teams willing to pay for that? And so I think the fascinating question is uh, how much will Hayward be able to turn I think what is seen is like limited offensive upside with skills that, you know, age earlier, uh, and, and peak earlier, uh, and, and our team's gonna pay for a star kind of speed and defense guy at a non up the middle position. It's, it's gonna be a fascinating test case. Right, and it's, in a strange way, I know that uh, when Edwards was looking at the, uh, Hayward as it, you know, exploring possibilities there, he found, um, he, he looked back at the contract signed by Jacoby Ellsbury and Carl Crawford. Yeah. Um, right. As examples of guy who would receive, who were likely to receive more money than you might expect given their, the amount of power they possessed. Right. Um, because they, you know, they possessed great speed and athleticism, uh, defensive, uh, contributions despite the fact that, well, in both Crawford and Hayward's case, they, they play a corner outfield position. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, uh, well, Craig, let's see, um, when, when, um, Ellsbury, no. Sorry. What, here's what I mean to say. When when Hayward wa, when Hayward was Ellsbury's age, when Hayward is Ellsbury's age, he'll have just finished the sixth year of his contract. Right. Um, and then it's uh, it's, it's uh, something similar for Crawford as well. There's just what, what is the what is the sort of near history of of players who've reached free agency this young? And I guess why why doesn't it happen more often? Well. You know, you need six and now most times seven years of service in order to get to free agency because teams will hold down your, your, uh, your service time in your rookie year in order to, you know, get that seventh year. Uh, so generally with any elite player, you're going to be under control to your original team for at least seven years, right? So to get to free agency after your age 25 season, you need to come up at 19. <laughs> like, uh, very few players make it to the big leagues as a teenager. Uh, and, and there just aren't a lot of them, uh, who, are good enough early enough on uh, to sustain themselves as major league players and not get sent back down. So uh, most likely free agents are, you know, more 29, 30, because that's basically falls in line with getting to the big leagues when you're 22, 23, which is more along the lines of what we see. And um, so I think uh, the history of guys reaching free agency uh, at this age, it's very good because it's guys who were talented enough to play in the major leagues as teenagers. But the, the, I think there's a fair question of like whether Jason Hayward really fits the mold of a guy like Bryce Harper or Mike Trout or, you know, some of these guys who, um, are monstrous hitters and were, um, you know, able to get to the big leagues and hit really well at an early age and ob- obviously turned into offensive superstars, uh, where Hayward got to the big leagues at an early age, but has probably uh, regressed a bit as a hitter. I mean, I think uh, at this point it's fair to say that his power has declined uh, since since he got to the big leagues, and uh, it doesn't seem obviously clear that it's going to tick back up. And has that been? Is that does that explain? Because well, the other thing, right, is that uh, for example, in the in the case of Mike Trout, uh, and other uh, stars who have been good enough to make young debuts, uh, they've also been extended, and more and more, of course, they've been uh, they've received contracts this, extensions. 
as young players, even before they reach arbitration. Yeah, I mean, it, right. The the trend has certainly been uh, as baseball teams have gotten more money is to keep their star players that they've developed internally. We've seen fewer and fewer of these guys getting the free agency uh, at the first point they would be eligible. So if you look at like you know Trout and Harper and Giancarlo Stanton and you know all the best young players in baseball, uh, or at least most of them, not quite Manny Machado, but you know all, most of these guys have already been extended and signed long-term deals that pay them uh, a significant amount of money and delay their free agency by three, four years. Right. And then, I, I mean, I suppose it's uh, maybe it, there's some reason to understand or it might be more obvious why Atlanta didn't do that, potentially because they were rebuilding and also uh, they traded him away. So, they, you know, it was sort of seemed maybe obvious that for whatever reason they didn't care for, they, they weren't interested in resigning him. Uh, was there ever was there ever regarded a possibility that the Cardinals would do so, though, however? To sign Hayward? To, to re, yeah, to extend him. Uh, well, I think that they would have loved to extend him, except for when you trade for a guy who's a year away from free agency and is going to reach, you know, the market as a 26-year-old. Uh, I think the cost to sign him before the season would have been, you know, 10, 200 or something along those lines. Like, it wasn't going to be one of those you get a bargain. You were basically going to have to pay free agent price in advance. And I think they figured, you know what, it's probably worth uh, evaluating what they have in St. Louis for a year, seeing how he fits before they pony up what is, you know, basically free agent money for him. Okay. All right. Uh, with regard to uh, projecting free agent salaries, et cetera, is, is there anything more we haven't um, noted in regard to that specifically you think that you wanted to, that you think deserves mention? Well, I think, you know, I wrote the piece this morning kind of about uh, the potential for inflation based on some outside factors. I think after I wrote the uh, my free agent predictions, kind of uh, noting that I, I'm higher on most of the top end free agents than uh, than the crowdsource results, and I think they're going to get more money. Uh, I went back and looked over them. I think even I'm going to come in low. I think like I would revise my own expectations up at this point, um, where I think you know, and talking to others, some some people in the game, and seeing you know John Heyman and uh, some other people uh, who've put out their uh, expectations and their you know. Uh, you know, connected individuals. So they're getting a lot of this information from people within the game. They might be getting it from agents who are trying to you know, put out positive numbers. But you know, I think that some of their their guesses have been proven to be fairly accurate in the past. Um, I do think that you know, like Chris Davis is probably going to get even more than the 130 million that I guessed, which is significantly more than the 100 million that the fans guessed. I, he might end up more over 150. Um, I think like we could be in for a winter of a lot of spending. And in this, uh, some of what you're saying has to do with, of course, the piece you wrote today, right? Uh, regarding, uh, well, regarding a couple of factors as to why those free agents might uh, might be earning more than we expect. But uh, not the least reason is is something is Bam Tech. Yeah, Bam Tech. It's a uh, it's the working name for a company that doesn't yet exist, but is expected to exist at some point in the future. And this is largely a result of of uh, Major League Baseball, right, having to create a streaming product for their own, to essentially create infrastructure for their own streaming product, succeeding in doing so, and then it working so well that they're able to license it to other entities. Uh, sort of, yes. Sort of, okay. How much of that was wrong? <laughs> no, yeah, that was like 80% right. Uh, so, like, what you were right about the formation of it, right? So, like, Major League Baseball wanted to stream their own games and be able to sell out-of-market uh uh, events or out-of-market games over the internet, uh, which they did, and it went really well. And MLB uh, at bat was formed, the app that is the number one uh, grossing app uh, uh, on the iTunes store for whatever six or seven years in a row now. Uh, MLB TV has been a very prosperous 
endeavor for Major League Baseball. So they created these kind of things to service their own needs. And they did a, such a good job that uh, other companies who had the same desires decided not to try and re- re- recreate the wheel and just said, hey, look, we like their wheel. Let's just use theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Major League Baseball has kind of done is pivot uh, away from just saying, yeah, we have this technology and we'll let you kind of ride along the the – the coattails of our technology is to now they're actually seeing themselves as a little bit of a content company. So like their last year they struck a deal with the NHL where they basically bought the rights to the NHL streaming services instead of just, you know, providing the platform for the NHL to do their uh, version of NHL TV. Uh, Major League Baseball uh, gave them a percentage of equity in this spam tech company that will eventually exist. Uh, and uh, is Major League Baseball is paying the NHL $100 million per year uh, for the rights to buy this content, and they're selling it themselves. And so Major League Baseball is now basically in the the rights business where the, you know, they used to be, uh, like we're used to major league teams selling the rights to their own content to cable companies. Now major league baseball is buying rights to other sports. They're buying rights. So they'll buy the hockey rights and then they yeah, stream they, the hockey games themselves. Yes. So major league baseball is, uh, now owns the, the rights to NHL streaming. And so if you buy uh, the hockey package, the hockey equivalent of MLB TV, uh, you will actually be paying major league baseball and not the NHL. That is, uh, it is a weird thing. It's enough, I mean, it, it, pu- it puts me to sleep almost immediately <laughs> because it just, but I also know it's, that is, these sorts of things we're doing where you are a facilitator, that's a, it seems to be a very good way to get wealthy. I mean, I think the, the best way to look at it is, Think of it in the future. We, I think everyone kind of expects that the cable bubble is eventually going to just collapse. And uh, it, yeah, the cord cutters and the, even the kids who grew up without cable are just not going to subscribe. And that business model is going to go away. So at some point in the future, we don't know how far down the line, but at some point, uh, you're most likely going to be able to buy um, – packages of content directly from the people who create them or the people who buy the rights to them. And what Major League Baseball has done is that they obviously own the rights to their baseball streaming, uh, and now they own the rights to hockey streaming, and they have a deal with the PGA where they're uh, going to show and broadcast the first couple rounds of tournaments, which have never been on television before, so they're kind of creating a new product there. Ba- baseball is setting themselves up to where they could sell some kind of uh, sports package to where if you want to just be a Netflix guy with sports, yeah. you could just buy a package from MLB instead of having to buy a package from Time Warner Cable or Comcast or uh, DirecTV or whoever, uh, and you could just supplement your kind of uh, you know uh, streaming options with some live sports uh, by buying it directly from Major League Baseball, and they're putting themselves in the position to offer a package that is more than just the sport that they run. Are you familiar with Sling? Yeah, I I am. I have used it. You've used it, yeah. Well, I have uh, accidentally. I have a subscription to Sling. I was I, <laughs> because you forgot to cancel your free trial. <laughs> no, I had a subscription to Dish World. I had uh, uh, the international sports package at Dish World, and Dish World, I believe. I don't know. I didn't care. I just know that one day it became Sling. I assume it was acquired by Sling. So uh, now I can I watch. Think, I think Dish created Sling, right? Well, fine. Dish created Sling. I don't yeah. care. This is probably like many consumers. I don't care. Okay. I just know that I have to pay someone X number of dollars and receive what I consider to be that much or slightly more than that in entertainment value per month. 
Right. That's the only thing I care about, right? Sling, I think, is what, $20 a month, and it's right now basically the only way to get ESPN without subscribing to a cable channel. So for people who are like, I'm a Netflix guy or whatever, uh, and they don't want to have cable, but they really miss ESPN, they can buy Sling and get a package of whatever, 12 channels or something with ESPN. MLB is kind of setting themselves up to do something similar, where if you get down the line and you say, yeah, I don't care about ESPN, but I want to be able to watch sports, right. uh, and I want Netflix, then you could go directly to them and, you know, uh, I think, as we've seen, there's going to be a really big market for that product right. in the future. Right. And if you will, I mean, in the way that – so I have the international sports package, which is just $10 a month, and you don't have to buy the $20 uh, per month package. But if you do buy the $20 package, then you can also add on different $5 packages. One of them is American sports. One of them is also uh, Spanish-language sports, too. So you can you can do that, and that's you know so what you're paying twenty five dollars a month, which is uh, considerably cheaper than cable, right? Yeah, and you know I think one of the benefits of this kind of over the top uh, streaming type services is there's no hardware required. Like one of the big problems, and I ran into this a few years ago, is like every October I would need to have cable in order to watch the playoffs because you know I would watch through MLB TV throughout the season, but you know uh, the postseason games weren't available through MLB TV in America, and so I would need to have uh, access to ESPN and CBS and uh, you know Fox Sports and all those things for for the postseason and I would have to like call Time Warner and they would have to like, come to my house and install a box and run line and it was like a it was a giant headache and this year I just bought Sling it was twenty bucks I already had a, a, a Amazon um, Fire TV stick in the back of my thing so it's just an app that I downloaded I paid them twenty dollars and bam I had ESPN and CBS and I could just start watching baseball it and was, bam you said bam right there bam it, that's bam. maybe why my bam tech is yeah. uh, going to be the thing that's um yeah I guess I guess that makes you really how, now how much for I'm interested in how much foresight because you seem like uh, you're a responsible person knowing that the playoffs were going to come up. Um, you know, we're, we're fast approaching. How many weeks in advance would would you call the cable company to have them come install the cable? Usually a couple of weeks. That and is, I would, I would schedule it for like like three or four days ahead of time, so that because you know the cable company never shows up on their scheduled day, so yeah. you give them leeway to like miss their first appointment and still get it installed in time. Yeah, that's a lot of forethought you're de- distributing or de- demonstrating there. Yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, I probably saved. Uh, I don't know, thousand dollars a year by not having cable, and considering how little I watch TV, I think that was a, a choice I'm happy with. Yeah, I think that you're probably right there. Uh, let's see, we did the Bam Tech. Um, again, bores me to tears, but I'm sure <laughs> someone's getting wealthy off of it. So congratulations to them. Uh, oh yeah, there was an actual baseball trade. Uh, there was the principals involved. Well, the teams involved were the Mariners and the Rays. I guess the principal players we might say uh, were. Well, of course, Logan Morrison is not worth nothing, but he hasn't been particularly great. He's recently. worth nothing. Okay, he's worth nothing. That's it. Uh, the the most notable names: Brad Miller going to Tampa Bay from yeah. Seattle, and then Nate Carnes, who had a, a strong season in the Rays rotation, going the other direction. A strong season might be overstating things. Nate Carnes showed some potential. You showed, yeah, he showed some potential. What? I mean, yeah. he had roughly a wait, roughly league average starter. Uh, by ERA, yeah. I think his fit minus was not very good because he had a significant home run problem. It was fine. It was fine. The whole thing was fine. But in any uh, case. Yeah, a 114 fit minus is fine. What are you talking about 114? I'm seeing, I'm seeing 103. What, can, what internet are you looking at? Uh, I think I'm remembering his career numbers. Yeah, I think Cause, you Because uh, his career numbers are, are worse. <laughs> not as good, right. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. I, now you're hearing your Anyway, at this point. Nate Carnes, uh, was okay last year. Was okay, right. And how, what was Brad Miller like? 
He was okay until they tried him as an outfielder, and then he was a disaster. Right. Uh, Brad Miller was not uh, was not a good center fielder. <laughs> right. Now, this is not the first uh, middle infielder with patience and some power to be traded uh, from the Mariners to the Rays. Right. And then Brad Miller will now go compete with Nick Franklin uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in the, the guy he used to compete with jobs uh, for when they were in the Mariners system. Right. They just don't have to deal with, what, Chris Taylor and Dustin Ackley anymore, I guess. Uh, and Kettle Marte, yeah. And Kettle Marte, that's right. Yeah. Look at God. The Mariners, for a team that has had some trouble in recent years, have really had little difficulty producing, you know, uh, serviceable middle infielders. Even, but even no, no, they serviceable in, middle infielding prospects. They have had a hard time turning them into serviceable middle infielders. Uh, yeah, well, but with the exception it, it, of Kyle Seeger, haven't they had a right. tough time turning anyone into a yes, serviceable right. player? They, they, they're, they've done a really good job of accumulating prospects and a really bad job of accumulating major league players. And, uh, the prospects who have strong minor league records. Yeah, right. This isn't just like hype guys. This is guys who, you know, play well in the minor leagues, uh, possess the kinds of skills that translate well, they project well, scouts like them in some cases, not necessarily in Brad Miller's cases, but, you know, in many cases, uh, you know, Montero and Ackley and Justin Smoke, like a lot of these guys were well regarded by everyone in the prospect community, and the fact that uh, so many of them have flopped is uh, an interesting discussion. Uh, I do think Brad Miller uh, will probably flourish in Tampa Bay in a way that he probably would not have in Seattle. Right. Although Nick Franklin hasn't necessarily done the same, has he? No, but I, I think Brad Miller has some skills that Nick Franklin doesn't have, mainly uh, like athleticism. Like Nick Franklin's, um, his his game is very Luis Valbuena-ish, where it's like a you know an undersized uh, guy trying to swing for the fences and hit a ton of fly balls and basically just uh, trying to hit for power on a, a frame that doesn't necessarily have power. And, and Franklin's not much of a defender. He's not much of a base runner. He's not a he's not very particularly fast. Where Brad Miller is like. Actually, a good athlete. He's, he's one of the fastest players in baseball in terms of foot speed, and um, he can play shortstop even though he makes some errors. Uh, so I think Miller's a much more well-rounded player than Franklin ever was. Okay, all right. And and you think? Uh, I mean, I guess the Rays. What the, what we know about them is that they're not necessarily. Uh, if they think a player has both some offensive and defensive skills, they're not going to be wringing their hands over trying to um, identify a position for him immediately. Just, uh, they get it well, but they're interested maybe in getting together good players and letting some things sort out. So I think that's true um, uh, in general, but not necessarily pertinent to Brad Miller. He's going to be the shortstop. Like I know a lot of people looked at it and said, "Oh, he played five positions last year," and there's been like a lot of Ben Zobrist comps thrown around. Uh, Brad Miller is not going to be their Ben Zobrist. They're going to stick him at shortstop. Like he was required to replace his Drupal Cabrera. Okay. All right. Well, now I know that. Uh, what does, uh, if anything? Because uh, we're looking always for clues. Uh, what, what does this trade reveal potentially about the new Mariners front office uh, in uh, in relief against the old one? Uh, not a lot, probably. I mean, I think uh, this is the kind of deal that you can look at and say, you know, it fits with what we already thought we knew about Jerry Depoto and that he really does value pitching depth. And this is something he'll talk about openly. Like one of the main things he did in Anaheim is he traded for a lot of arms. He uh, traded Mark Trumbo for Tyler Skaggs and traded for actor Santiago. Like um, he focused pretty heavily on making sure that the team had enough rotation depth uh, as a, you know, a kind of a priority. And, you know, the Mariners did not have rotation depth. And, and I think, 
him trading for a young cost-controlled pitcher with five years of, of control left is not a big surprise. Uh, the fact that he gave up Brad Miller, uh, probably not a huge shock either, given that the team does have Kendall Marte, who played pretty well in the Magoo Leagues in the second half of the year. I think Chris Taylor is a good defender and could potentially split time, and, and the two of them could do a job share. Um, if you don't see Brad Miller as a shortstop, it probably makes sense to trade him to a team that does because uh, his second-half audition as an outfielder didn't go very well, mm-hmm. and the bat's not great for a corner outfield spot if he, if he can't play center. So Miller most likely has more value to the Rays than he did to the Mariners. Um, and, you know, so that when you have a kind of an inefficiency there where you're going to have to take a shortstop and play him in some position besides shortstop, trading him probably makes sense. Right. Uh, uh, last thing before we go, I guess, uh, Dan Farnsworth released, uh, the introduction in, uh, primer, primer, primer? Primer, yeah. You say primer. I think people might say, I think there are some out there who say primer. Yeah, but I don't want to be friends with those people. <laughs> you don't want to be friends with anybody is one yeah, point. That's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the introduction is, uh, to his, uh, his, uh, organizational prospect list. Very exciting. Yeah, first list will probably be up by the time people are listening to this podcast. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, Dan did a really good job of kind of laying out uh, kind of how his grades and rankings are going to work and giving people some background so that it's not just, you know, one, two, three, four, five, top ten list. Right, and I think the the thing he does, I think the thing that Kylie did, the thing you want from anyone who's discussed, well, I guess anyone who's going to be, you know, taking on any sort of project like this, but certainly with regard to prospects, is... It's not necessarily – there are questions of right or wrong, but he's very clear – he's very clear about the criteria he's using is I think that it's nice. And, he's, and it's founded in some sort of uh, empirical evidence. Yeah. I mean I think that's one of the things that – you know, there's a lot of people out there doing really good prospect work. Uh, obviously, Baseball America has been at this forever. And you know, there's a lot of people – uh, who you can look to for prospect evaluation, uh, who have credibility. I mean, Jim Callis, and there's a lot of guys out there. Um, so I think, you know, for Fangraphs to do something that's different and interesting and provides value and isn't just the same kind of prospect work you can get elsewhere, we need to do something that is uh, maybe a little bit more um, analytically grounded. And so I think, you know, you don't necessarily want to just evaluate the players by the numbers, but you can maybe set up your framework in a in a way that kind of relates to the numbers and gives people a, a better understanding of what, when you say, like, this guy projects as a number three starter, well, what does that mean? You know, or if this guy has a 60 hit tool, what does that mean? You know, and kind of give them a frame of reference uh, for, you know, kind of the analytically minded fans so that they can kind of interpret a lot of these scouting phrases and turn them into uh, maybe the kinds of numbers they're used to seeing on fan graphs on a daily basis. All right. Dave Cameron, you have... Uh officially fulfill your obligation to the podcast. Hooray. Hooray. That has been, well, first of all, I'll say thank you. You're welcome. And then I will say this. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.